It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the PR Week podcast, Beyond the Noise. I am your host, Frankie Oliver, founder of New Society, and today I am joined by PR Week's UK editor, John Harrington. Hi, Frankie. And excitingly, live from Cannes, we are joined by PR Week editor-in-chief, Danny Rogers. Hi, guys. Welcome to the Côte d'Azur. Bonjour. So the Cannes Lions, as Danny explained in his recent piece in The Independent, is the advertising, PR and media industry's equivalent of Davos and the Cannes Film Festival. It has taken place most years since 1954, and this is the first face-to-face event since COVID, which forced the event online in 2020 and 2021. It consists of lots of excellent thought-leading events, judging and winning of highly coveted Cannes Lion Awards, and of course, there's a lot of rosé drinking and fun to be had. Sadly, John and I are stuck at home with a cuppa, and no bottle of Lady A, as we were promised, given the worst train strike in 30 years is happening today and for the rest of the week. Um, But Danny, you are there in Cannes, enjoying it in all its glory. How have the first few days been? Uh, Yeah, it's it's very good to be back here, really. And it's good that Cannes is back on, because, of course, it hasn't been... Uh, held for the last three years due to the pandemic. And I've been coming here for about a dozen years on and off. Um, And I certainly get what irritates people about Cannes and accept a lot of its criticisms, but it is probably the the greatest international showcase of commercial creativity that exists in the world. So, no, it's very nice to be here. And I do feel sorry for you guys with the, <laughs> with the train strike back there. Though I understand it's warm back there. We, we are having here, a little so. bit of a heat wave, which is quite nice. So it sounds like there's a, is there an air of excitement? Do you think that it's back on, you're face to face, you're all back together? Yeah, it feels very busy. I'd say as busy as it's ever been. Um, I hear the delegate numbers are actually pretty similar to 2019, although the entries to the award schemes were down about... 20%. Um, but this, there's a lot of people here. I think it feels like people really want to get together, as you say, post lockdown. Um, I'd say that the crowd feels more senior than usual. And it's definitely more American than I can ever remember it. Um, and actually, seniority and American in the marketing communications world is pretty much the same thing. I mean, big brands and big agencies tend to be run by Americans, and they all look like they're here at the moment. They seem to love Cannes. That's really interesting, Danny. Why do you think that is? I mean, I think Cannes, especially from an awards perspective, was starting to get a much more international presence, I think. There was so much great work starting to come out of South America, New Zealand, Australia. Um, But it sounds like maybe that's not as well represented, maybe, or is it just very much about the delegates rather than the work? I think there's quite a lot of South Americans here. Uh, There just seems to be a lot of North Americans here, particularly. 
I think there's probably fewer Asian delegates this year for obvious reasons. I think there's still quite a lot of restrictions from China and from uh, other parts of the of the East. Um, so, yeah, the Americans seem to love coming to Cannes. Uh, I suppose they've always had a love affair with the south of France um, in America. And um, it's not particularly green, is it? That's That's the one thing I would say. It's kind of ironic because... As I was going to say in a, in a moment, there's a, a lot of emphasis on climate change and um, environmentalism. But of course, if you've got Americans flying in thousands of miles uh, on planes, it's not the most uh, climate change friendly uh, development. Well, there has been a, a sort of request for these sorts of events to go online, really, as there was for COP itself, for example. Do what's I know there's lots of events being planned by different climate change communities um, involved in advertising and also from the activist movement. Have you have you seen that presence? There was a sense it was going to be there. What's how's that actually manifesting while you're there? I mean, it can feels greener in some ways than it used to be. There's there's no plastic bottles around for any of the drinks. I mean the. Um, there's been there's a big cut down on paper as well. There's no printed materials. Everything's now on apps, and uh, so that's good. Uh, there's been a couple of climate protests. There was a, a a protest on stage yesterday by a Greenpeace creative who was complaining about fossil fuels being you know fossil fuel companies being awarded and at, at the festival. So yeah, it feels like the environment is pretty high on the agenda. It's not the only thing on the agenda, but it does feel like Cannes start to take uh, climate change more, more seriously. And do you think it is taking it seriously? It's not just saying, oh, inconvenient activists on the stage. Or do you think the message is, is actually cutting through? It's a big question, isn't it? I mean, there are always contradictions in these big international expensive events uh, that address things like climate change. I mean, they are good forums, I think, to talk about these issues. And I do think the creative industry is a way of changing behaviours and changing attitudes to the environment. There are contradictions because, as I say, people fly in from all around the world and uh, a lot of the brands here probably aren't the the most ethical. If, But, it, you know, I mean, Greenpeace uses, it enters things that can and, and Greenpeace uses the festival as a way of communicating to its audiences. So it's full of contradictions. Yes, I think while we're going through a process of systemic change, those things are going to continue for a while, aren't they? So in terms of, I suppose, the big question that really um, dominates our industry is how well does PR actually fare at the Can Lions? Do you have a view on that so far? I know that the PR award isn't going to be announced or even shortlisted, I think, until Thursday. But is there, I know that there's some people that have started to win some awards on a bronze level. What's your view so far? Have you got a sense of how well the industry is going to do? This is a, an age-old question at, at Cannes. I mean, they in, introduced a PR category for the awards in 2009. And the narrative has been ever since 2009 that there's a PR category, but most of the big awards are run by ad agencies. And in a way, it's, a, it's becoming a bit of a, a boring argument because... Yeah, the, it's mostly the big companies that enter can. It's pretty expensive. Um, I'm sure a lot of the PR awards will be won by ad agencies again. But that doesn't make, mean that it's not relevant to PR professionals because a lot of the ideas that do win at can are PR ideas. They're earned media ideas. And I think it's a lot for PR people to, you know, learn and take away from a lot of the content at can. So... We'll see. As you say, the PR lines aren't announced till Thursday. The shortlists are out Wednesday. So um, by the time you hear this, we probably still won't know uh, who the winners are. But this, I mean, it's a really good campaigns here, and there's some that involve PR agencies. Uh, I was listening to the uh, the winners of the um, entertainment lines this morning. Uh, and I think I can talk about those now because the embargo will be up by the time we we come out. And um, the winning campaign, the Grand Prix, was a campaign by uh, the Swedish Food Federation uh, called Eat a Swede. And it was all about um, uh, sort of genetically modified food and 
responsible eating, environmental eating. You know, the Swedes are a very, um, a very innovative, creative country. And this campaign was done by McCann Stockholm, which obviously is a, an advertising agency. But the PR was a big part of that. And it was done by Prime Weber Shamwick, which is a sister agency to McCann. So it, it won the Grand Prix in the entertainment lines. It may well do well at the, um, at the PR lines as well. We'll have to see. Sounds like a great campaign. Scandinavian campaigns have done typically quite well. They have, yeah. Uh, there's always going to be a lot of American winners here because there's a lot of American companies entering. But you're right, the the Scandinavian, and particularly the Swedish campaigns do tend to do well here. They're a very creative culture. There's another really interesting campaign here that won a Grand Prix in the outdoor category. It was called Liquid Billboard by Adidas. And this is a, a billboard, an outdoor installation in Dubai, that women are encouraged to actually swim in. You can, it's, like, it's like a swimming pool. And uh, women can change into their presumably Adidas um, swim gear and, uh, and swim in this public billboard. And the whole point is uh, that there's quite a few cultural problems for uh, women and doing sport in the Middle East. Uh, apparently, they don't often have the confidence to swim in public. So this is... a uh, initiative by Adidas to try and give them confidence to to go swimming and and to do do sports. Uh, it's by Havas Middle East, the campaign. And um, as I say, one Grand Prix in uh, in outdoor category, and it may well win other lines during this week. So I think I'm going to need to look at a picture of this because I'm trying to imagine how big this swimming pool actually is. The idea of doing something on a billboard ain't a new idea, as we all know, but I suppose it's about what you can do on that billboard. So the scale and impact of the swimming probably seems to be the most important part of that, I would have thought. Yeah, it's also an earned media campaign, isn't it? I mean, in a way, it doesn't matter how many people actually swim in the billboard. The fact is that even if they get one person doing it, they can then cover this in on TV and um, in newspapers or whatever. It's the story, I suppose, that um, that matters here. So I think it's actually a classic earned media campaign. And then we've also got the usual suspects, such as uh, Unilever's Dove and Nike, that are already picking up quite a lot of golds across various categories and maybe a Grand Prix later this week with some of these campaigns. Dove is entering loads as usual, mostly on body image and um, female self-confidence. Nike is doing a lot of sports campaigns, obviously. Um, another big theme here, very encouragingly, is Ukraine war. So Monday, yesterday, was full of Ukraine content uh, President Zelensky was beamed into the uh, auditorium wow. to address the delegates, uh, all about using the creative industries to raise money for Ukraine and to put pressure on governments to end the war. So that was a big, a big event. And um, I also attended Gary Kasparov's address. You may know Gary Pat Kasparov, who's the chess grandmaster, who's also become a big democracy campaigner and a big opponent of President Putin. And um, I interviewed Gary Kasparov after his address, and uh, he's a very impressive guy. He's trying to raise money for Ukraine. He's trying to he set up something called Regain Ukraine with Edelman, with Richard Edelman, that um, tries to get brands and businesses to pull together to change attitudes on Ukraine and ultimately to stop the war. That's a pretty big ambition, isn't it, Danny, wouldn't you say? Stopping the war through the power of brands. It is a big ambition. But what I like about all this Ukraine content is it feels very now. You know, it feels like it's an issue that's clearly acute in the world that perhaps we can all do something to to stop it by putting pressure on our governments to raise money for the Ukraine. And Gary Kasparov's point is that We've got to stop Putin. It's not going to be a negotiated settlement. We've got to end this war. And it's only really Western governments who can end this war by giving Ukraine the military and uh, financial support that it needs. So was there a clear call to arms in terms of what business and brands could actually do to help to end the war? I think this is a difficult question. And I did ask this question at the press conference with Kasparov. You know, what exactly can brands do and I think what 
Kasparov and uh, Richard Edelman were saying was that it needs to become a cause celebre that, you know, we can find heroes among the Ukrainian people, a bit like Colin Kaepernick when he was a hero for Nike's campaign against uh, against racism. So they're really casting around for ideas that brands can can use or, or new celebrities from within Ukraine that can be become symbolic of the war or heroes and brands can get behind them and all of this the idea is it ramps up pressure on russia and uh, on western governments to to stop this um, this invasion and was there any discussion around the role of media too because obviously there's been a real problem with the closing down of access to the bbc to certain social media channels so the role of brand, you can invest lots of money in terms of, you know, brand storytelling and campaigns and so forth. But what's the chances of it actually getting through? A big part of the Regain Ukraine initiative, and I think what Zelensky is saying as well, is that the big battle, as you say, is to fight Russian misinformation and disinformation. It's to get stories out from what's really happening in Ukraine, to get uh, Russians as well, who are living abroad, to you know say what they believe is happening, and to because the Russian machine is a big propaganda machine, and it's up to the media to fight that. So yes, it's a big responsibility, I think. And finally, on the PR side, I am hosting a lunch tomorrow, Wednesday, which is uh, a whole load of creative UK agencies, and we're going to be discussing creativity and PR, purpose campaigning, and how the PR industry can become better at, at campaigning and look at some of the big themes in campaigning. So I really want to give a voice to the UK PR industry, which I don't think at the moment has much presence at Cannes. So I can report back next time perhaps we meet on that or check the PR Week website for uh, updates. That sounds like a fascinating conversation to be a part of. You've hosted these lunches before, I believe, haven't you? We've done it a few times over the years. Obviously, we haven't done it for three years because there hasn't been a can. But the idea is a sort of fringe event for UK and European PR agencies who feel a bit excluded from can because can tends to be dominated by the big American networks, as I say, and it's nice that the UK, which is, let's face it, the most creative PR market in the world, but arguably the most dynamic PR market in the world. It's good that we have a voice at this um, International Festival of Creativity. Well, I'm sure it will be a great lunch. Thanks so much to Danny for joining us from Cannes. We wish you a great few days ahead and can't wait to hear who the winners are from Thursday's PR awards. Big congrats to those that have already won or been nominated. So moving on to the second part of today's podcast, we are joined by Mark Perkins, Creative Director at Cal. Hello. Mark has led some of the industry's most lauded campaigns, including the Christmas Tinner, which won the PRCA Campaign of the Year and was shortlisted for several Cal Lions. And of course, Missing Type, such a famous campaign, which won four Cal Lions, including a gold in health and a bronze in creative effectiveness. Mark, it's great to have you with us today uh, for us to have a great conversation, I'm sure, about Can and the industry's performance on creativity. So I think really we have to start at the beginning, really, with the key theme of today, which is what's your view on Can and this sort of ongoing conundrum, which actually Danny on our previous segment said it was getting a bit boring, this conversation now, about PR's ability to, to win at Can. Well, it's not something I've ever lost any sleep over. Um, <laughs> I think you should always remember, we should always remember that Cannes is an advertising event with the PR category in it. And PR agencies um, often do well, sometimes they don't. I think the thing about Cannes is that great campaigns always win, but sometimes great campaigns don't win uh, because they're often judged through the prism of advertising effectiveness. and. I think sometimes where PR is at a disadvantage is how we sell and merchandise our own work. And I've always said that with awards, and especially can, it's about 50% the campaign and the other 50% is the entry. And if you want to win a PR lion, you've got to produce a really slick video. And that comes down to, uh, you can't do that as an afterthought. 
um, it really has to be produced to an advertising standard. And that's why advertising agencies do so well. They know how to merchandise their work. PRs are very good at storytelling, uh, but advertising agencies are very good at visual storytelling. And you've got to encapsulate and sell your campaign in one minute, 30 seconds. And having worked with Engine or Missing Type, I was impressed by how quickly, even as the campaign was still running, the thought was already going into what the cam video was going to look like. So as a PR agency, especially a small one that I work at where there's 20 of us and a creative team too, we haven't entered at Cal Can before. And I've certainly not entered the last few years because the amount of resource you need, especially time to make that video is big. And an organization like Engine dedicated um, a creative team, a creative director, uh, an art director, and uh, an editor, and spent two weeks in the studio refining, editing, and getting the story just right of how to sell the concept of missing time. Um, when I did Christmas dinner, I tried to do it on my own, got shortlisted, but I looked back on the video and it was very ponderous. So it's a lot of thought has to be given about not just the campaign, but how do you make the campaign win? I think advertising agencies are very good at the visual craft of that, but they're very aggressive and focused on creating a, a story with visual impact that is going to wow judges. And that requires a lot of time and skilled people working behind it. And huge production teams that are already in-house that lots of, you know, smaller, independent, even mid-sized agencies just don't have access to. Exactly. And uh, so you do have to second a lot of people to it. If you do win a can line, it feels great. But you are competing, you know, against global network agencies for whom winning a can lion is is everything and it's a measure of their work. And I think we kind of kind of tiptoe into it with great work and hoping it does well. And sometimes it does cut through, but you are competing against these booking off agencies who know by the virtue of their work, how to sell. And that's what you really have to do. You have to sell your campaign. The results um, and a, a couple of news clippings aren't gonna cut it. You have to, you have to think about what the story is and how you, you kind of impact a judge in the first 10 seconds, just as you would an ad. And having judged the PR Week Awards a number of times, I think we, we've both been on the other side of, you know, the PR industry isn't brilliant always at knowing how to package and storytell and grab the interest of the reader within the first 10 seconds, 30 seconds. Yeah, we PR people are quite humble and modest where, you know, ad people are much more brash and, uh, you know, it is about winning and success and selling. And um, I think I think maybe we underplay ourselves a little bit. Um, sometimes the work is a lot better. Um, I think you know we're slightly at a disadvantage as well. In a lot of the work we do is from the earned sphere, and it doesn't have the backing of a of a giant media spend behind it. And a lot of these campaigns do. They're essentially work produced by ad agencies that have that big impact that you can get through promoted spend online, through ad spots, through bought media. So you've got guaranteed eyeballs. So if you've got a low budget campaign that got um, amazing results and say like 10, 20,000 pounds, you're still competing against campaigns that maybe cost um, significantly more to produce, but had uh, sometimes a media spend of millions. Uh, and they kind of buy their way into culture rather than getting there on merit. Um, not to say these aren't great campaigns and pay doesn't have a part, but you're competing against that as a PR agency. You're com and the judges don't always necessarily know that you didn't have that same kind of clout of media spend behind it as some of the other campaigns they're up against. But I still believe in the, the purity of a, a simple idea to be able to capture people's attention, make them think differently, make them laugh, make them cry. And make a difference. So I think you know we 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 shouldn't lose sleep over it. So at the beginning, and enjoy the work that you do, and enjoy the work that is really great and, and wins. Agreed, John. These themes that Mark's brought out, these were very similar themes that James talked about in his preview piece to Can, and very much. I think there were some judges in that piece talking about the need for judges to actually hunt out the work it was actually hard to try and find the earned first work actually in some uh, some of the categories to uh, that the the point that mark makes around you know the ability to produce really high production packaging to ensure that the the work is um well understood and viewed and so forth um and then i think also 
some of the issues around which we'll come on to, which is, are all the judges best placed to actually really be able to understand the earned media and, and really the value of some of the campaigns that have been submitted? What, what's your view on all of this, having probably seen a few cans come and go now? Yeah, um, well, I do think it's, I do think it's a problem. I do, I completely agree with Mark. There does seem to be this, um, this lack of understanding sometimes among um, people with an Adlan background about what an earned media campaign is. Um, I know that CAN changed the definitions of earned media and some of the criteria a few years ago. So in terms of the types of work that is winning and the perception of earns value and role within the integrated mix. Do you think, I'm looking to Mark here, do you think that there's still a belief that, you know, PR is there to promote the ad or the paid for execution? Or are you starting to see much more kind of earned first work coming through and that's starting to get a bigger platform than we've seen in the past? It depends who you're working with. And it depends on the ad agency you're working with. And it depends on the client you're working with. Uh, I found from experience that if you can get in a situation where you're you're dealing with, say, a CMO um, or a head of comms that is really switched on to the value of value of earned, and you get in a situation where its best idea wins, and you really learn how to not learn, uh, you really know how to sell your idea, and you sell the vision in the same way that an ad agency does, you have the best chance. When it's working with a lot of ad agencies, it's still very much of, here's our creative, can you make it famous? And that creative might be a billboard. So uh, in, and from my point of view, and I think from all our points of view, is that the billboard should be the final part of the campaign, the kind of cherry on the top of the cake rather than the beginning. And I've worked with ad agencies in the past where they've come back with, with a big creative and it's a billboard. And it's, you know, maybe a creative billboard, but it's still a billboard. And I said to them, look, it's it's a billboard. It's, it's, it looks like marketing and it smells like marketing. It sounds like marketing. You know, people, it, it's not big enough to capture people's attention. And they've literally come back a week later with a bigger billboard and uh, maybe more billboards and more ad space because they're still thinking of the conventions of where you can place uh, and disrupt through bought space. Um, whereas I think as PRs, because you have to work more on your wits, you're thinking about what is it in people's lives and daily routines, the media they're consuming, the earned media they're consuming, where you can grab their attention. So advertising is still a craft and great advertising requires just as much hard work as, a, as an earned media campaign, but you have to think and act differently. And you can't make a billboard famous, but you can take maybe the essence or spirit that went into the idea of the billboard and do something different with it and do something um, completely original and, and thought provoking. But trying to make the ad creative famous is still kind of endemic in our industry. And I think we still have to push back on it. But if you work with um, more switched on ad agencies, and I guess this only comes from if they've collaborated in the past successfully, Otherwise, they're very much ingrained in their culture um, of what great looks like and how you grab people's attention. Um, I think working collaboratively, and if you work on ideas and creative development at the very beginning, you can have that core thought and how you blow it out in different ways and take it to different places so it can be seen and heard and interpreted in different ways rather than starting with the ad and, and uh, the creative. Uh, in its final form. I mean, interestingly, we've just heard about one of the Grand Prix winners being a billboard from Danny. So um, surprise, surprise, it was all around, um, uh, I think, sort of a, um, a social change campaign encouraging women in a Middle Eastern country to swim and therefore they had a swimming billboard. So um, that's still winning some of the work. I think your point, though, really, and this is something that I've experienced on a lot of purpose campaigns which has been really frustrating which is the idea that a campaign starts with an ad script rather than a goal yeah and I think from a goal and a clear brief then you can look at what the idea is and then the idea can then be manifested in many different ways and the key is to find an idea that naturally is earned at its heart ideally because then it will make all channels ideally more engaging and more successful but do you think we're going backwards at all because I think 
definitely 10 years ago. I think there was some really great and interesting integrated work. I think there were many more brands, CMOs, communications directors issuing pitches where the idea was that anyone could win and they were putting PR and ad and media agencies sort of equally in, in the pitch um, arena together and really with the opportunity for, for everybody to pitch the right idea and, and may the best one win. Whereas now there seems to be, especially on some of the campaigns that I've seen over the last couple of years, just such an increasing sort of stranglehold of the advertising relationship around the client that actually starting from that sort of channel neutral, insight led, goal focused approach is. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. In some cases being lost. Would you agree? Has that been your experience? Um, I think so, though we, we do a lot of work with Heineken and we produced their Euros campaign last year uh, and we're doing their, their women's one this year. And a lot of people assumed that it was the work of the ad agency. Um, so we, we're borrowing stuff from their craft, but we're always thinking, what's the story behind it? Um, why are people going to write about this? And I think the most fundamental question that any creative and, and anyone client side should ask when they've got an idea in front of them uh, in fact, starting at the brief, is who's going to give a shit about this idea? Um, and that's a fundamental question. Not enough people ask it. You, there, it's all too easy for, for creatives and agencies to fall in love with an idea because it looks great and it looks really slick when you might have this celebrity and it's got this kind of subtle twist and we've got this director involved. And it could be a beautiful piece of content. It could be an ad. It could be a billboard. It could be a stunt. But actually, I think... All too often, the creative process, the first thing that gets forgotten about is the intended audience. And you'll see this for some of the work it can and some of the work that wins is that it's work that is hugely admired and liked by peers in the industry, whether or not it reached uh, Doris in, in Dulwich, who was the intended audience, or, you know, it's another case in point. It's... Um, might have shifted the dial creatively in the industry, might have really wowed, but did it really capture the public imagination? Did it do that intended job? So I think a lot of times, um, and this is why PRs are good and useful collaborating with our creatives, is we can say, well, who is going to care about this? Um, it looks great, but how does how does this translate? I think it comes back to that question that's always there, isn't it, around how do we actually evaluate word of mouth and conversation and shifts in terms of peer-to-peer -peer dialogue that mm -hmm. might change opinion and so forth. And sometimes I think because the budgets aren't as high as we, we potentially need them to be, those shifts in terms of the evaluation metrics are harder to... I mean, it's back to that age-old question that, we, that we've all asked, but actually you can use some common sense can't you to stand back from somebody and say is anybody really going to care about this or have we just all slightly lost the plot yeah i can give an example of a really great collaboration working with two creators when i was at engine working with wcrs um it was for an organ donor campaign and it was about um i had this idea of capturing a day in the life of uh an organ donor patient waiting for news of a donor and he'd been waiting for six years and nothing ever happens. So I, I pitched into a couple of creatives and they want to make this film and how do we do it? You know, kind of big brother style, just a, a day in the life. And they came back and they cost it up and said, we've got to work with this director or this director. And he's really cool. He's done stuff with Nike and Adidas. He's made a pop video. 
And all in all, it's going to cost about £400,000. So I've got bad news for you guys that the budget's £50,000. But it doesn't matter who the director is because the story and the subject is the man and his weight. And it's less about the craft and who's made it rather than the subject matter. And that's where the emotion is. And it's the emotion you need to get off to tell the story because that's what's going to connect with the audience, not the director and not how slick it is. So we made something together and I learned so much off of them as well about the craft of filmmaking. Um, but it was it was within budget and it was a success. Um, so it was tempering their creative energy and insight and, and skills with my kind of sense of what makes a good story and where we needed to focus on for media and to connect with an audience. And it sounded like it was a true collaboration. It so was, I think yeah. sometimes if people can actually sort of, you know, forget about the, the, the lines and the barriers between kind of what separates us and find more common good between what brings us together, but understand who's got different skills in different places so that we can like can collaborate and just deliver fantastic work together. You know, it doesn't always have to be we do it this way and therefore it must be done this way. So I think that sort of opening of that collaboration makes a big difference. And, doesn't and it? actually working on a much smaller budget makes you use your wits a lot more. You have to you have to cut corners and be terrible word, but agile and think on your feet about, OK, well, we can't have this and can't have that. So how else do we improvise to to get to where we want to be to the end product? So with that sort of thought in mind, thinking about Adlan's respect for and buy into the power of earned media. I think about people like Niels Leonard, who used to be the creative director at Grey, um, now running uh, the Uncommon studio. You know, he I know that he always pitched at the beginning and, you know, what was the PR idea that made this campaign make sense? And that's how he began every pitch. But I believe you've recently sort of met some hostility from fellow members of the Adlan who don't really buy into the idea that earned can actually deliver value. Yeah, I had an interesting last day on holiday in Spain where um, I'd, I'd seen a, a post on Twitter by by someone who works in, in advertising. And it was, um, I think the line was, no creative idea can overcome no media spend. And there are about 2,000 likes for it and people in advertising saying, preach and with you all the way and everyone needs to know this. And I just wrote that... Um, I respectfully disagreed and I, I took the uh, the, the sentiment, the, the line, and, and put it on my LinkedIn, which is for the, the addition that if you have an original idea that's built on insights, that hits a chord and is properly crafted, i.e. doesn't look like an ad, um, it will, you know, it can generate fame and make a difference and, and use the use a kind of manufactured quote, you know, so we saw our campaign on CNN News. Oh, was it the ad break? No, it was the news. And... Lots of people in the PR industry, I say lots, lots of people I know, a handful of people say, oh, that's that's nice and, and liked it. And then it kind of blew up because a lot of people in advertising, especially people in America, took great offense to this. Uh, and, and it started becoming a little bit toxic. I got called a liar that I was fabricating, I'm exaggerating, but campaigns must have um, spend before them in order to make news. And, um, you know, even getting called out and being told that the kind of work I do couldn't be described as a campaign and demanding proof, you know, name five campaigns that have done this and, and where do you start? And there was a lack of curiosity from actually how earned media works. And I tried to spend my life, I tried to avoid spending my last day getting embroiled in it on this ridiculous LinkedIn thread, which I eventually deleted because it was driving me around the twist. But there was a real resistance to the fact I became like Michael Caine in a, in a PR Adland version of Zulu, defending this little PR garrison against hordes of advertising people. Well, one of whom even said, you know, I was undermining the entire industry by, by saying to clients that we could make work famous for free. And obviously they have to pay for, for teams to, to sell in to, to media um, to get that coverage on CNN, BBC, The Sun, Guardian, Vogue, wherever. But ultimately, you know, we we work and we think differently. And it was an eye-opener how great a number of people who worked in advertising and digital and generally in media thought that I was spinning some kind of lie and saying this is the kind of thing that really undermines our work. But, you know, my, my riposte to that, if I was going to be a little bit blunt, is, you know, do better work because you can make and craft work that 
becomes news, international, national news, and go viral without having a vast amount of media spend behind it. It's because it connects with people, they like it, and they want to share it. And, and it has news value. So it's extraordinary, really. I mean, if I think about one of the, the, the biggest campaigns of Cannes of the last 10 years that really captured everybody's imagination was obviously Fearless Girl. And that was, you know, 100% earned editorial, you know, an amazing uh, cultural intervention slash, you know, installation. Um, I believe it was led by an ad agency, actually, yeah. and, and fully earned at its heart and an incredible success. So I'm really surprised that with all of those sorts of sort of legacy campaigns, you know, even being delivered in the States, that you were getting that kind of hostility and, and being undermined in quite that way. And from, and from what I understand, it wasn't just one person, it was quite a few people that were sort of piling in on this conversation. Yeah, and demanding proof. Um, Paul, Paul Lucas, of, uh, creative director at um, Fan Club PR, who did Mount Recycle More, you know, weighed in as well, because he said, you know, I, on this thread, I, I got 100 pieces of national broadcast coverage, or we did, for uh, uh, Mount Recycle More with zero uh, media spend. And the genius of that campaign was just, it was a brilliant creative, but it was the placement, it was the timing of it, and people saw it. Uh, because they instinctively knew that it was it was more than an ad, you know. It was, uh, it was creatively disruptive, and it really underlined an important point they wanted to make. So inherently, had news value. They went to where the news was. They went to the G7 in Cornwall, and that's why people saw it. and And it was slightly subversive. Um, it wasn't, you know, a, a, and it was produced very well. It was as produced. Well. The visual yeah. was excellent yeah really good you know and it wasn't an ad spot it wasn't a, you know a, a, a page in the times and the ft and the sun it was it was just a brilliant idea placed at the right place at the right time where the media were and so that was just a, a way of how pr can instinctively understand that you go fishing where the fish are John, I'm really interested for your point of view on this. And also, if God, it'd be so interesting to invite PR Week USA into this as well, wouldn't it? Do you, do you have some sort of sense of this being the situation across the pond when it comes to the perception of earned media? I think it is a perception that's there. I mean, a, a, I have a friend who um, who's a creative director in, in, in Adland, and he's been quite dismissive of, of, of PRs. And I've never really, I haven't really spoken to, to him about it for quite a while. But I do think there is this general sense of PR is the sort of the upstart. We'll give them a, we'll ask them to write a press release about um, our brilliant ad campaign, and then that's pretty much all they're good for. I, I sometimes, I, and maybe I'm being a bit unfair, but sometimes I, I think there is just this general ignorance about how journalism works, how media relations works, how that side of PR, that's the bread and butter of PR, um, works, and maybe among some, there's a lack of desire to get to know it as well. Um, this sense that no, we know our audience. It's about billboards. It's about you know um, TV ads. It's about ads on YouTube and all the rest of it. Um, I, I do think that is a, a problem. I, I struggle to sort of say how widespread that problem is, but um, and maybe it's changing a bit as we hear that you know more ad agencies will will hire people from different backgrounds and so on in the same way that PR agencies have been doing. So maybe it's something that is is evolving slightly, but. I definitely think that is an issue. And, you know, I, I do think there is this slightly bullshy culture that exists in Adland that probably doesn't help this sense of, um, I don't want to say arrogance because that, that sounds a bit unfair, but this sense of um, paid media is the way to go and anything else is probably just going to be insubstantial and um, we don't need to worry about it. But maybe I'm being a bit unfair. It's really interesting because I think 20 years ago, we would have all said that, oh gosh, here comes the annoying creative director from the ad agency. This is going to be a painful meeting. You know, that sort of thing needs to be discussed quite a lot. And, you know, my personal experience of having worked with, you know, some really fantastic ad and media agencies, I would say around 10 to 15 years ago, was a really fantastic time where there was real collaboration going on between ad and media agencies. And I think really kind of tipping into 20, sort of 2012 and onwards, where there was obviously the explosion of digital, where media agencies started to become our competitors and actually started to compete with us on buying influencers, buying, you know, what were typically earned platforms such as podcasts. 
And actually, I think, you know, some media agencies saying that they did PR, we sort of became this sort of bolt on that seemed to be a part of their existing service set that they could deliver end to end, as opposed to welcoming us in as strategic partners, as you know, at a planning level before we even got to the creative idea. And, and I used to find that you had to absolutely have that seat at the table at the beginning from a planning perspective before you could even kind of get to that integrated, big, potentially even earned first idea. And I think... I, I have a sense that that has eroded over the last few years. Do you agree, John? I think there may be something in that. I mean, my, my experience in the industry only goes back sort of seven and a half years. But um, I remember, I mean, Christmas campaigns were always seen as a good barometer, aren't they? Aren't they? I mean, I think in, in 2014, when I was quite new to the industry, there was that fantastic campaign by Unity, for Follow the Fairies for Marks and Spencer. Do you remember that? Where it was really... I was judging the PR Week Awards where, yeah, I could go, the winner, go. definitely. Well, I probably shouldn't say that as a judge, <laughs> should I, if I break the rule? Probably. Someone will come and get you. Watch out. Um, yeah. So yeah. I remember at, at the time there was a lot of discussion about how that was a really good earn, earned media first campaign um, for a Christmas campaign, which is obviously traditionally, um, you know, big ad spend um, and all the rest of it. And I think it's a real shame that we haven't seen anything like that unless someone could point out um, where there has been something like that. I mean, maybe there's been bits and pieces echoing it slightly, but I haven't seen any of the big retailer Christmas campaigns that have gone anywhere near that since that point. And I wonder if this is part of the same trend that you're you're talking about, really, that sort of 10 or 15 years ago, things started to change a bit. The Unity Follow the Fairies campaign was definitely part of that kind of golden era, I think, before things started to change quite dramatically. What was really interesting is that I was judging that award and I had to go and speak to the chair. I think it was the chair lady of Diageo, I'm trying to remember now. I had to go and speak to them and ask them to clarify for the, the um, award judges what integrated actually meant. Because I was so frustrated when I was inside that judging because there was there was this sort of idea that, oh, well, if it costs millions of pounds and it had an ad involved and it did this, that and the other, then, of course, it's going to be successful and therefore it shouldn't win. It was a really interesting process and a bit frustrating, but I was really glad that Follow the Fairies won because it was a proper integrated campaign. And I agree. I don't think we've seen that level of integration in campaigns of late. Would you agree, Mark? I think it's true. Um increasingly we are seeing more and more campaigns just given to, to PRs. And I'm not speaking just personally, I think, kind of as an industry, we don't get that kind of PR first or that come up with that platform. Um, having said that, we're, we're doing something for Heineken Women's Euros where we were given the opportunity um, to come up with the platform uh, with a non-traditional PR campaign that uh, does segue into different channels. So. The opportunity is there, and we were just fortunate enough to um, have the opportunity to to have a to pitch a great idea, and and the client bought into it. So again, it comes down to having the client that can see how far an idea can stretch beyond just um, you know a press release and a stunt and a message, um, and give you the opportunity to to craft it in different areas that go into things like social and influencer and content. But uh, and there will be a bit of paid behind it as well. But that's that's the exception to the rule. I think the point there you made was about having the right client. And I think that's so important. Uh, their level of expertise within the um, space, their level of confidence. And I think something that can also happen in, in with PR agencies and the integrated mix is that sometimes your client need can end up being the assistant brand manager or the brand manager with very sort of mm -hmm. low levels of earned experience. And that can also affect the ability for some of these ideas to, to cut through. So the client and their ability to, to really understand earned, I think is still really low amongst even really senior CMOs. Would you agree? It is, although success does tend to open lots of doors. So if you do something great for them, um, it makes their campaign famous. It makes them look better internally. And suddenly they buy into you a lot more. There is that belief there. So you have to you have to win over their their respect and their trust. And you can only do that by maybe doing smaller pieces of work that really do uh, capture attention and are are effective beyond just clicks and headlines, but you know, can help be transformative for the business or whatever it is they're trying to do, whether it's you know, uh, change brand perception, sales, whatever. 
and then they will invest more in you because they, they have that faith. So I think good work and good client relations will, will help foster that, but it's always an ongoing challenge. Well, it sounds like there you're, you're saying that really the opportunity to start small, go on a learning journey with that client and then build on those foundations as you, as you help that client also learn and see what's possible and, and, and feel confidence from that success. Which, which makes a lot of sense. I have interestingly been inside meetings with clients from really big brands who have openly admitted to me that they know that the campaign started with an ad script and it should be a campaign, it should start with a goal and all of those things that should happen. And then actually to get, you know, mid-level, client level, and, and then to get actually inside the big cross-agency meetings and then back away just, just through the sheer power and influence of the advertising relationship that even they as the client felt fearful of challenging yeah you do see that uh, and you do see that some sometimes um cmos and, and clients are enthralled to the ad agency and it goes back to that point that we said at the beginning and john mentioned as well you know ad agencies can be very bullish uh, and very confident and they know how to sell and uh they they don't tend to acknowledge failure so much. They always focus on success. Um, so e even if a campaign didn't go as well as it might have done or should have done, ad agencies are still always focusing on the positive, on what it achieved, even, even though it might have mixed results. We've also seen at Cannes a real dominance of technology and obviously the merging of creativity and technology together, which brings us on, I think, to the M word, Mark, which is... The metaverse, obviously the, the hot new trend um, for the industry. How well do you think it's being understood and being invested in by brands? Well, it's definitely being invested in by brands. If you look over the last six months, uh, the, the, it's become the new bright, shiny toy. But no one's really worked out what to do with it. So we've seen stuff like there's been a metaverse fashion week where some of the biggest fashion houses in the world of exhibited clothing. You can buy property on there. You can go to a Miller Lite bar and order a beer. You can go shopping, obviously, and buy, buy sneakers, buy all the major brands. You can go to concerts. Um, but ultimately, I think one of the biggest criticisms at the moment, uh, and it's, it's a valid one, is that it just seems to be another place where brands are badging things and looking for new ways to extract money from consumers rather than doing anything interesting and, and meaningful and um, so the world's biggest brands are there but i think the most interesting creative work that has been done in or around the metaverse has been stuff poking fun at it and, and satirizing it so when zuckerberg launched it with his famous 15 minute video announcing not just only Facebook's commitment to the metaverse but their rebrand to meta um, within days the icelandic tourist board had released a parody video, the Icelandverse, making quite a clear and salient point about the pleasures and experiences you can enjoy in the real world. Uh, and it seemed an interesting, it seemed like maybe the right idea at the wrong time after two years of lockdown and not being able to socialize, not being able to go to the cinema, not being able to go to a bar, not being able to have a face-to-face -face conversation, that suddenly the world's biggest brand is telling us to stay indoors and put in the headset uh, and lose ourselves there. So I think, it will possibly involve in time, but the, the other great piece of work around the, the metaverse was uh, the first homeless person in the metaverse, which was done by TWA. And they created an avatar who highlighted the absurdity of commercialism in the metaverse where you can spend $650,000 on a yacht, which you can sail in a virtual world, or you could buy a property for hundreds of thousands of dollars next door to Snoop Dogg, you could buy a Gucci bag. Um, all costing money, but you can't actually experience them. Yet we, in the real world, have still got lots of fundamental problems to solve, such as feeding the homeless and ending homelessness and poverty. So it's a major distraction. It seems like maybe kind of post a post-pandemic breakdown that we're suddenly focusing on the metaverse and losing ourselves in that, when there's so much else going on in the world, whether it is climate change, Ukraine, other social issues. Um, in fact, we parodied ourselves at Cal when we created the first metaverse bar in real life behind a consilver, where you had to wear a headset and you went into a real bar that was completely pixelated and you got served a plastic pint because, of course, if you went to the middle light bar in the metaverse, you can buy a drink, but you can't drink it. So in a world that has supposedly unlimited possibilities, 
you can't taste an ice cold beer. So some, some things are better in real life. So I think it might be years and years yet before we see the potential of it. And there's this gold rush at the moment for brands going in, buying up literally real estate and working out exactly what to do with it uh, in a meaningful way that they're just creating their real world experiences in this uh, virtual reality, but in a way that isn't really compelling or interesting or creative at the moment. So the jury's out, but I was the guy who in 2004 predicted that no one would take a photo on their phone. So what do I know? Well, I know, I think you know quite a lot. I'm probably with you on your opinions. I have a sense that really this is an extension of the gaming community rather than necessarily anything that's gonna drive you know, mass public engagement. What do you think in terms of the audience profile and where it is and where it potentially could go? I'm always suspicious about anything that requires me to put a large piece of plastic on my head in order to have a good time. Uh, and I think that's always going to be the limitations. Um, we were told five years ago, 10 years ago, that VR is the future. It still really isn't. Uh, and I think it kind of is within the gaming community. We saw the failure of Google Glasses. So anything that requires a physical appendage to, to leave our reality, I, th I, think, I think nothing does beat you know, a good meal, going to a football match, a live concert, a face-to-face -face conversation. There is a place for virtual reality and that place will become more sophisticated and more compelling. But at the moment, um, especially after uh, two years of lockdown, um, I think we are still valuing the simple things so people aren't rushing to the metaverse unless they're already bought into that tech world. It's, it'll be really hard to convince my wife to leave the metaverse when she can... Uh, go out for a cocktail with her friends. Great, thank you so much, Mark. I feel that this conversation could carry on all afternoon about PR and creativity, but I'm afraid we're gonna have to draw it to a close and thank you so much for your time before we now move on to this week's Top or Flop? Yes, so um, I'm gonna start with Top for this week and we were tempted to go for, for Prince William actually. Um, who's been talking about when he went undercover, I'm using air quotes here, although um, you won't be able to see, um, selling the big issue. Um, he wrote a piece, wrote again, inverted commas, in the, uh, in the big issue about it, and he seemed to come across quite well. But I'm actually going to go um, across the ponds. I'm going to go for um, Rizzo, the, the US singer, specifically for her response to uh, the flood of criticism she received about her use of an ableist slur in, in a new song. Um, I, I think it's really important to, you know, as communicators, to look at how people respond to criticism online, um, whether they sort of become defensive, whether they make it worse, um, or whether they sort of hold their hands up and show what they're going to do to to respond. Rizzo's response on a so was on a social media account. It seemed a very personal response and related to uh, her own experiences. She also showed a commitment to learn, and crucially, she acted quickly. Um, she removed the slur from, from the song. Um, what she said, um, and I quote, one thing to clarify, I never want to promote derogatory words. Um, as a fat black woman in America, I've used a lot of harmful words to me, so I understand the potential power of words, unintentional, or in my case, um, sorry, intentionally, or in my case, unintentionally. Um, she claimed that the lyrics change was uh, a result of what I heard and acted upon. So I really think, um, you know, that was a good response. Um, and I think probably the industry can learn from that, particularly those that, that struggle with, with with apologies. So on to flop. And you mentioned it earlier on, Frankie, but like everyone else, um, <laughs> I've been aghast at the transport situation uh, in this country this week for the last couple of weeks. We've got the train and tube strikes, obviously, this week. Um, I expect your view of who has handled this well or not from a commerce perspective may be linked to where your sympathies lie the unions or with network rail slash train companies. Um, there's a comment piece on this in the, on PR Week this week from Alberto Lopez uh, uh, Valenzuela of, of Alba, he calls it, uh, uh, for decisive comms on the issue. Obviously, chaos on the airports continues to be a huge topic as well. Um, in a way, it feels unfair to single out one company or organization. But... Um, I, I and we we think TUI's reputation has taken particularly bad hits. Um, tour operators like TUI are, are focus a lot, obviously, on, on the family market and stories of nightmare delays and children in tears from across the regions has been been pretty awful. Um, here's a headline uh, from the Express last week: 
Tui Chaos has family hit by four cancellations in 48 hours and police board plane. Um, it's worth saying I don't really blame the comms team specifically for this. Their responses to this were, were sort of pretty standard and, and understandable. Um, but there's no doubt that Tui, among many others, but um, have, have clearly suffered in reputational terms um, from the problems currently being experienced. Absolutely. I think I think everybody's just a bit shocked that they couldn't see what was coming down the line for an industry that's normally so well planned on so many potential crises that could come that actually getting people back in the air after COVID should have been meticulously planned. So I think it's definitely become something of a shock to everybody that, that this has manifested in quite the way that it has. Yes. So that brings us to the end of our Beyond the Noise special in Cannes and on creativity. Thank you so much to Mark for joining us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We hope you all enjoyed listening and we look forward to you joining us next time. 